Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And I'm Natalie Latovsky. And we promised last time that we were going to try to get two episodes in for the end of the year, although I think the way this is going, what we are recording today uh, will probably be available to most people on New Year's Day. So this will probably be the first episode of 2022, but it wraps up the holiday season. And we've had a movie sitting in our digital uh, collection for quite a while and had never gotten to it for no particular reason and decided this was the year. So we decided as a little extra bonus holiday episode, we were going to just chat about Anna and the Apocalypse. We go through here, we might make it to the school before sundown. Plus, it'll be fun. Yeah, certain death is so much fun. <sighs> this isn't fun anymore. which has quickly become, since its release in 2017, one of the most beloved recent uh, horror film releases of the last 20 years or so. I mean, you see everybody that talks about it says it's become an instant annual tradition for them. You kind of cue the Stefan voice and be like, this movie has everything. Musical numbers, weird British stuff. It's like it's got a lot of everything that people want. For the season. Zombies, by the way, which I didn't mention. Stefan would hold that one for the end, I suppose. It's just one of those things where neither of us is sure why exactly we hadn't watched it yet. We were so enthusiastic about it that we purchased a digital copy the minute it became available because it was clear that because it was British and various streaming rights when it was first released, they weren't sure when, if ever, it was going to stream in the U.S., and so we're like, well, guess we'll we'll buy a copy to make sure we can watch it. And then didn't, for whatever reason. It also has quite a can-do uh, sort of inspirational backstory a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that the guy who was, it seems like, the linchpin in creating the whole thing, this guy named Ryan McHenry, who died of cancer before they were able to finish the film. He had written it, co-written it. Uh, and he had done a, a BAFTA-nominated short called Zombie Musical, and this was basically him getting the whole team together, and it was like, we're going to make a feature film version, and then he died, and they all stuck together with this idea of we're doing this for Ryan, and put together what is what we quickly, within the first five minutes, realized, for the most part, everyone out there is right, is an extraordinary piece of work by a group of people that are clearly very talented, but also not a lot of them having yet had extensive careers. Some of them, it seems, just starting. Bolstered by some older character actors who have been in the requisite Doctor Who episodes and other things, you know. Which pretty much is par for the course with any British production. Yeah, except for like the brief window of time when Doctor Who wasn't around. You're going to hit somebody who's been in Doctor Who at some point. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, extraordinary cast and and also just a bizarre idea to take a zombie movie and also we then subsequently discovered they were really serious about doing a zombie movie mm-hmm. you know the way you would expect to do a very straightforward the zombies are not a joke kind of film but turn it also into a very uh sort of effervescent feeling kind of musical and and uh it was just from like the first few minutes it became clear that this was a beautiful piece of work and 
the songs are well written. That they they talked about in in various places how their influences, which really, if you're steeped in any pop culture, are really kind of obvious. And I don't mean that in a bad way, mm-hmm. but really kind of obvious. But their their inspirations come from everything from West Side Story to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer musical episode to all the classic zombie stuff you'd expect as touchstones from Night of the Living Dead up to things like Shaun of the Dead. And all of that shows, and not in a way that feels like it's copying, but rather in a way that feels like they found their own voice through all the things that inspired them. I also felt like there was a little touch of um, Across the Universe. That was the the musical movie that was done sort of creating a storyline and characters out of Beatles music. And especially um, there was a song they sang in their school cafeteria. This is before the chaos occurs where, you know, it's different characters singing and they all kind of come in and out of the song and the people around them, like the other students kind of go between just being sitting at the tables, having conversations to providing the chorus. And it very much reminded me of the way in across the universe, they did their version of it won't be long. Um, Especially Evan Rachel Wood's character in there where she's in school and a lot of the rhythm is done by people tapping on desks or using basketballs on a basketball court. Right, they do a lot of that. They do that in there too. Um, which also, I mean, is just sort of the nature of musicals. It's yeah, not I mean, even like it's borrowed from that. It's just borrowed from pop culture musical. Well, yeah, one of the things I mentioned was how beautifully I thought the songs in this do the job of being both entertaining and I could easily see on multiple watches like singable Mm -hmm. along with the movie and yet also each do their part to advance the plot which is the way you'd want it to be and i even told you at one point i can almost feel like i can tell which buffy song from the episode we were at at any given point except that that's probably more because for me the buffy episode was an example of a musical that i really steeped myself in for a long time listening to that soundtrack over and over but was itself inspired by so many other musicals that really if you're doing a good musical you're doing the same thing the song should both entertain and advance the plot mm-hmm. and it and, matches the pacing of right, it too and and embody whatever emotional stakes are involved with the characters at that point so in other words i think it's less about the fact that it feels like a copy, good, a good one, of the things we're familiar with, and more the fact that the things we're familiar with are themselves many steps along the way in the history of the musical, and maybe we're both. Dis- I mean, I've seen, I've, I've certainly seen my share of some of the classic ones in film, mm-hmm. but I'm, I was never as huge a fan. So for me, it was more pick and choose which musicals I might like. I mean, I did props and costumes for all the musical theater when I was in high school. So I'm, I'm pretty well steeped in with the musical theater kids, but I wasn't a performer. So maybe not quite as steeped as they are. But... So you would get the suspenders and the candy canes ready for the guys as they danced out for their number. <laughs> uh, if only we didn't do any numbers like that. That was a good one. Um, I guess we should say also for anybody that doesn't know, Anna and the Apocalypse came out in 2017. As we said, it's uh, it's a very British take on things, actually, in Scotland. And Anna is our main character, and she's played by Ella Hunt. 
and we're introduced to her best friend who clearly loves her, but neither one of them appear to be at a point where they're admitting it one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's someone who's interested in her, who's got his own little tough guy gang, uh, who's very much like they just stepped out of the Scottish version of West Side Story. (laughs) And then uh, they have a friend who... um, she, I think we know for sure she's lesbian uh, mm-hmm. and and uh, and playing an American and she's playing an American. I don't think she was she was, but doing a great accent and she's supposed to have been kind of left there by her parents and feeling like out of sorts because she's in a foreign land kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and some other friends, including the couple, the, the the requisite like sweet dumb young lovers. Yeah, and uh, and in a way, I was kind of lulled so much by the beautiful tone of everything that i think i was thrown as we both were i think we'll talk more about that soon by just how dark this movie really gets but the movie really seems to want to be faithful to the genre in which it's set and Mm -hmm. be a zombie movie uh which i kind of was almost disappointed by but we'll we'll get to that i think this is a, a good place to sort of mention as we usually do there will be spoilers ahead we have not really gotten into anything plot related yet, but since this is more recent than right. some of the other movies that we have covered recently, fair warning, if you would like to pause, watch it first, and then come back and we'll discuss some plot points here. And I think also, kudos in particular, everybody in this is great. Mm. Every single person in this cast. I think you said early on you weren't prepared for how well this was made. Yeah. I think we both had an impression somehow that this was like lower budget, but it isn't. I got a little bit of indie film PTSD when it comes to film quality, camera shakes, um, you know, bad resolution. Not a lot of that either in some of the zombie action. Not a lot of shaking. None of it. I could actually watch through the whole thing. Nobody splattered fake blood on the camera lens, which is a pet peeve for both of us. So uh, two thumbs up solely for that. And uh, I was going to say, particular kudos, I think, to uh, character actor Paul Kay, who comes into this as perhaps the most over-the-top insane character throughout as the forthcoming new headmaster of the school, whose last name is Savage. So in keeping with standard zombie symbolism, if you need to get a sense of what this character is going to be like, and basically think about the fact that it's 2017... We're, we're basically many, many years into the Walking Dead era of the zombie genre. So naturally, you need somebody who's going to be the true villain of the piece, the governor uh, <laughs> of He's the story. He's also kind of Dickensian in a way. Very, very much a modern version of a typical British school headmaster villainous character. And my God, the hair and beard <laughs> is just... But that's Paul Kay as Arthur Savage. And uh, it's, I mean... Yes, we're doing full spoilers, but it's certainly no spoiler the minute you meet him that you know he'll be the worst person in the movie. Yeah. There are also some things where I I don't consider any of these a flaw, but it's one of those things I think we get kind of used to it where there were some set him up pay him off moments that were very clear. Like when you know like there's a they're doing they're preparing the Christmas play and there's a big star that's set up as the backdrop, but oh, there's a rope that if you pull it just right, the star will like move forward and hit whoever's in front of it. Hope that doesn't happen by the end of the film. The minute I saw it happen, I was like, whoop, 
we'll just watch for that later when the zombies show up. Yeah, and I mean that's fine. You know, they they do a nice job of doing all those things, and if you're you've been through enough of this, you can see it happening in front of you. Sure, but it's nice. the The music is fantastic. I I think if I had to say. And I don't know quite, maybe it's just the vocals, maybe it's just the way it was structured. I think every single song in this, almost every single one, feels like a gem. And like feels pleasing. And also, like we said, carries the story and carries emotional weight. But to me, the two weakest songs in the movie, and only in comparison, Mm. are both Paul K's as savage Mm -hmm. i think the one where he basically comes out completely as the villain is quote unquote the worst song in the movie it's very over the top and and then the his second main one also and i and i think it's largely maybe because the rest is so melodic so uh well structured his veer more toward a performance piece than a song But then that also serves the character. So I can't say I really want to criticize it, just that I thought those were the weak points. I think it's because his are very much so like Disney villain having like a monologue song moment. He looks like a living cartoon. He really does. And it's not really ensemble pieces because some of the strength of the other music is the fact that they're layered. You have different like vocal ranges and harmonies and like callbacks and things and his tend to be just him for the most part or like him and maybe one other person. Um, Personally, I would also argue that once we really get into the apocalypse part of this, that's where I feel like the music actually starts to let me down a little bit. I think the musical numbers pre-apocalypse are better. I think the high point of the entire movie is the song where she's gotten up, like Shaun of the Dead style. She gets up the morning after the apocalypse has begun. Mm -hmm. The whole neighborhood has clearly fallen apart. There's zombies everywhere, but she doesn't notice because she's just so happy. And she's got headphones on. Yeah, and it's like, you know, what a beautiful day it is. That has to be the single, like if there was nothing else, Mm -hmm. just the conceit. That someone is singing a song about the they're having the greatest day while the world is falling apart and they don't know was brilliant. And it's a beautiful day. And it makes it even better that it's two characters doing it. It's Anna and her best friend John. Doing like what they do, I guess, whenever it is that they walk to school instead of getting a ride to school where they're both coming from different directions and they're going to meet like in a graveyard, and walk the rest of the way together because that's what they do. And so both of them have headphones in, both of them are singing and dancing and chaos is just going on around them. And every so often you'll see a character in the background look at her or him and like try to talk to them or interact with them. And that's what makes it such a fantastic piece because it's not just that musical theater thing where somebody starts singing and dancing and it's like separate from reality Mm -hmm. where it's like everyone else to everyone else around them. It's like, they're just walking down the street and the singing and dancing just goes on in their head. In this case, she's 
literally singing and dancing down the street while people are getting eaten and other people are screaming like help Mm -hmm. and like a woman's trying to like save her baby who then gets eaten in a in a stroller by a zombie which to me is always the brave touch in a movie when you're willing to show a zombie eating a child especially a baby is just like oh they're gonna go there like that that gets an extra star just for that well, especially right at the start of your apocalypse portion, mm-hmm. like that sets the level well, that of apocalypse. Well, kind of, that probably should have also warned us about where oh, this I was know. going. I know. I mean, and also the fact that they kind of signpost it right away because the first big number is, is it's not going to be a Hollywood ending. Yeah. And I guess I should say, but I didn't really even say, so it's set in Scotland. Anna's our main character. We meet the friends. They're going to school. They're setting up for a Christmas play. So it's the holidays. And yet uh, they're about to get your standard zombie apocalypse where everything's going to go to hell. And then the usual having to wend their way through their familiar areas from school to a Christmas tree place to place the bowling alley where one of them works or a couple of them work and figure out a way to survive. Leading to the very standard Romero-esque ending, very Dawn of the Dead style ending of, well, we just kind of reached the end of our movie and we're going to send the survivors off into an uncertain future. It's not not a Hollywood ending. And and also we did mention, by the way, about the music when we were watching it, how amazing it is to do a very festive sounding Christmas movie set at that time and yet not use a single holiday standard, public domain or otherwise. They even for the very Christmassy songs created all their own songs for this. Including a song that's on the radio at the start of it is a Christmas song that's meant to sound like it's a pop Christmas classic, but isn't. And several songs they do during their like Christmas pantomime that are not one of which is sort of a Santa baby kind of song. But much funnier. Much funnier and much raunchier than Santa baby. So like that's my new Santa baby Mm -hmm. because like that's what I would rather hear. It's really one of the standout musical numbers. Although the penguins doing like a fish rap. I, I don't know Christmas that well, but I feel like now I really don't know Christmas (laughs) I feel like having only had a tangential awareness of it through Doctor Who fandom, I feel like that's coming more from like the sort of UK pantomime tradition of holiday entertainment that always seems really, to Americans anyway, weird and strange and Mm. bizarrely all over the map. So I'm figuring, well, that probably makes sense. Or maybe it doesn't. <laughs> maybe they're just wrapping penguins. I don't know. I mean, I got the impression here that like a Christmas play is generally, and again, all of my experience is just from film, having never been to one. Even when I was in school, we didn't do stuff like that. But my neighborhood as a kid was basically like being on It's a Small World at, at Disney. Like it was extraordinarily multicultural. So even in the 80s, they were sort of sensitive to the fact that our holiday, like, performances, I guess, that we would do at school were just sort of like a sampling of every culture of every kid that went Mm. to the school, which I know is not maybe a typical 80s experience in America. Um, Yeah, I never experienced a single bit of this ever in any school environment. So it's like my understanding of it is okay if you have a christmas play it's one of two things it's either a play that's the retelling 
of the Christmas story, a la Charlie Brown Christmas, where that's what they're trying to put together with the shepherds and the manger and the incense or whatever, the worst baby gifts known (laughs) to man. Um, But that's a, that's a rant for another day. Not so much myrrh next time. (laughs) Diapers, maybe. Diapers, bottles, formula. Mm -hmm. We brought you frankincense. Mm -hmm. It's like, what is wrong with you? But anyway, um, so it's either that or it's a bunch of kids like dressed up in cute little outfits singing the standard Christmas carols and songs. Like they all dress up as reindeer and do a Rudolph thing. Or yeah. Something. So, I mean, that's kind of in my head what I see as Christmas plays. So when their like Christmas play opens up and it's two people in these giant penguin suits like rapping about salmon. And I'm like, this is amazing. And I want Christmas to be this every year. <laughs> When we started doing the podcasting together and we were still doing Doctor of the Dead, it was growing out of the original idea that uh, had been going on for quite a few years about me being steeped in all the uh, zombie lore and doing all the work that I was doing publicly about commenting on zombies. And we don't do that as much anymore. Not that we couldn't, and we have plenty of movies we could still watch, but we've we've opened up to so many other things and it's been fun to do that. But it's kind of interesting to come back to a zombie movie and maybe do some of the things that I used to do. Like one of the things that occurred to me was it gives us an opportunity to talk about stuff that I haven't really talked about in a while. Like, let's take a look at how the zombies actually function in this movie. Because mm. clearly they've been inspired by a lot of things. They, they're they very open about it's the Romero films. It's Sean. It's a Japanese movie. They, they actually credited, and I hate to say it, it was included in the index with my very first book with Andy Hirschberger, Zombie Mania, but still to this day, I've never seen it. It is a Japanese zombie movie called The Happiness of the Katakuris, which I might be mispronouncing, but it itself was a musical comedy. Mm. And I know some things about it, but I don't know. It's a ba- it's apparently based on a South Korean movie itself. That came out in 2001. I remember that Andy and I tried to get a hold of it to possibly do it and then that became one of the the Japanese films we didn't see Mm -hmm. Uh, and I still haven't seen it so I'm not sure what in this movie unless it's just the idea of the musical comedy aspect is in there but certainly for all the classic zombie stuff you can pick up on the things they're doing and as we said the zombies as with all I think good examples of mixing genre are treated seriously they are a genuine threat. They're monstrous and flesh-eating from the moment they appear, like you pointed out. They really set the bar high, too, for the level of of gore. I mean, they don't dwell on the gore much. Not really. But there's, le- there's some blood. But, I mean, for the level of uh, the ferocity of it, you know they're killing everybody. They it's- also set a very specific type of zombie. Yes. So these are shambling zombies, but they're not. they're not, like super slow shambly but they're shambly enough that you could walk past them if you needed to and they're not going to chase you but they will come at you they also don't seem to be motivated so much by smell like there are some where the zombies are like a feral hunting creature and these seem to just be if i see you i will eat you it's the it's the it's the choices they made that are interesting I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's all it's all made up anyway, so who cares? But I mean, it's the choices they made probably to facilitate 
the story they wanted to tell mm-hmm. that that are interesting, like the fact that they clearly wanted to do good old classic Romero-esque shambling slow. They don't run. Uh, the makeup looks very basic and good, but I mean, you know, nothing very innovative. They look yellowish and gray and they have the white eyes and they're all bloody and everything. And the makeup's great, but I mean, it's like they don't reinvent anything with that. These are very traditional looking modern zombies. And then the things they picked and choose the, picked and chose why am i not getting that right why do i think that's wrong Because it feels weird it feels weird um we're still interesting like you said the fact that there's no smell involved is a weird choice like there's even that sequence where some of them are actually able to crawl around the room directly under them and there's no reaction because clearly smell does not play a role. As long as they're distracted by something yeah. else. And even sound doesn't seem as big a deal as them seeing you. It seems like it's the visual that's the biggest deal. I mean, the sound helps. Like, if they hear you, yeah. they'll still look up because there's a point where they all sort of get trapped in, like, a a sort of death trap by the headmaster who's gone completely insane at this point. Oh yeah. Where he like locks him in a room with a bunch of zombies and they're just trying to be really still and quiet. And he blows a whistle and they all turn around and are like, Hmm, delicious. And like, want to go after them. So there's certainly a consistency yeah. to that. It seems to be sight and sound more so than yeah. smell. Like to the point where some of them in, when they try to leave the bowling alley where they've kind of been holed up and decide, okay, we're going to try to make the trip across town on foot to get to the school. Cause that seems to be the evacuation point before the power went out. And that's what they were told. And they like overturn an inflatable pool and are walking inside that's, of it. I like that. And it's like, if it's the killer shrews. Feeling. Yeah. It's like the zombies, if they don't see a human form, they don't seem to be going after them. Yeah. So even it's when they lift it for a second and one of them on the ground sees them. Yeah. That they come after them again. So it's very much a, they have to recognize that you're human before they'll attack you. So they're very consistent on it. And I think for me, the thing I love the most about it is that right off the bat, they just call them zombies. Yeah, there's like the slightest bit, I think, from Anna at the beginning about how this sounds crazy. Yeah. A little tiny bit of that Shaun of the Dead thing of we're not going to use the Z word, although they don't even go that far. Mm-hmm. But then they just they stay with it. They're yeah. zombies. It's this like is what they are. There's a moment where after our favorite musical number where Anna and her best friend John are both dancing and singing from opposite directions. And they meet in the park and then a zombie in like a full-on snowman mascot costume <laughs> yeah. like falls over and she's like i know first aid like do you need help and like you know the head lifts up and she's like oh no and it kind of follows them into a park and she whacks it in the head with a teeter-totter and its head just pops right off and so they're sitting there now trying to figure out like what to do she's trying to get like a signal and he's trying to tell her like they're zombies and she's like that's crazy and he's like hello and points behind her and the head's on the ground like still like Mm -hmm. gnashing its teeth yep and she's like not quite willing to believe it but he's like zombie like it's right there and they continue to have that conversation later like you know do the things we do in all the movies which all work you know, so mm-hmm. and it turns out it's not the decapitation's not enough. This is one where you gotta destroy the brain. Right. So the removing the head part 
doesn't do it, but doesn't destroying do it. the brain will. Which again is straight Romero because like there's the one in Day of the Dead where they they use the shovel on the one in the mine and you can see the head still moving, the eyes are still moving. So mm-hmm. that's hey, zombies, right? I know. As far as the origin of it, it also hit us kind of hard. We're like, right at the beginning, they do your standard Night of Living Dead homage of people getting in a car, hearing the beginning of the report on the radio and turning it off. Yeah. You literally hear them almost getting to the word reanimate, I think, when they turned it off. But it's like they're referring to the pandemic and a super flu that's spreading quickly. And I'm thinking, damn. And the thing is, this is by no means the, I mean, that's been a thing in horror and zombie movies. For decades, we've been talking about super flus and pandemics, and but this one happening in 2017, only a few years before it really happens. Not the zombie part. Not the zombie yet. Okay. Um, don't don't even with that. I don't even want to think about. Still it. mutating is what oh, I'm saying. Lord. Um, the it just felt particularly close. Yeah, the fact that like the use of the word pandemic within like the first three minutes of the film, and it just like ooh, gut punch. Yeah, um, not in a bad way. It's just like it suddenly made it feel even more relevant, maybe than it would have felt if we'd watched it a few years ago. But here's the thing about gut punch, though, is that I think one of the things, and this will be, I think, I'm sure, a purely personal reaction from both of us. I think we're on the same page on yeah. this that many others might disagree about, and that's fine. And I think I've talked about this before in certain other contexts with other movies. Maybe it's also because I'm getting older, but also we're both feeling this. And I don't know if it's maybe also because of what we're going through, but there are certain things I now prefer from a movie, even a horror movie, even a bleak apocalyptic film that I never used to care about when I was younger. I used to talk all the time, I think there are interviews out there where I'm quoted as saying it, is that to me, a zombie movie doesn't work unless there's no hope. It's got to be the end of everything. I completely feel differently now. I need some element of hope. And that has drastically changed from how I used to feel. And I think part of the joy of this film in the first half particularly is is sadly dampened a bit as it becomes clear that they're going to really go full bore with making a zombie movie like the zombie movies they're paying homage to, even at the cost of losing some of the sense of joy that the musical aspect of it kind of inherently gives it. Mm -hmm. And we see more characters that we care about die by the end of the film than I was remotely prepared for and there is such a sadness, really, at the end of the movie where the few people left are doing, like we said earlier, the Dawn of the Dead kind of, well, we're the last ones. Let's just head out into the uncertain future. And all I could think was with the musical and the and the songs, I wanted there to be a happier ending with mm-hmm. somebody. I then, again, full spoilers. So I think the biggest gut punch for us was when John dies so early on. He, yeah, I, I mean, mean, we're we're not that far into the apocalypse portion of it, 
and they make some poor decisions, as people do in these movies. Although I have to say also some of their poor decisions are not as bad as some other movies' poor decisions. Yes. And also they're meant to be like 17 years old. It's like 17-year-olds make poor decisions. It's almost more forgivable than adults making poor decisions. And I like that things are nuanced, like the fact that Nick, who's kind of the tough, toxic guy, we find out that a lot of his toxicity comes from the fact that he was raised by a military father mm-hmm. who he then had to kill, which leads to also, I think, one of my favorite emotional beats in the movie where he tells someone by the end of the movie, don't do the thing I did of being the one to kill the person you love because right. you're going to live with that. And I thought, this is a lot of emotional development for this character. But it, it still was so disappointing and uh, it's John's death. It's a couple of the very, like the sweetest characters. Our, our sweet young dumb couple. Yeah. It just, it, it hurts. And it also hurt in the way that I could easily see this becoming a movie I'd want to watch every year as part of like Christmas watching. But I'm not entirely sure because it's painful. It's like we could turn it on and watch it. And then when they decide to cut through the Christmas tree farm, instead of going the long way, we just turn it off. (laughs) We just stop at that point. It's painful. And the thing is, is I still feel like I really want to give them a lot of credit. They made an excellent movie. I can understand why everybody was so effusive about it. The Mm -hmm. music is superb. The zombie action and makeup and everything is great. Everybody acts great in it. And I totally respect the fact that their idea was it's the zombie movie like all the ones we love, just with music added, except that my problem then becomes, I think the musical aspect should have informed a bit more of the resolution of the story. I think we got spoiled a little bit with um, Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. That's the kind of tone of an ending I would have yeah. wanted this to have. I mean, that's Maybe sort that's because of... they're in Scotland. <laughs> I don't know. But it's like Scout's Guide has some of those same elements of like you meet your high school characters before something goes wrong, yeah. something starts going wrong and they don't realize it. Then when they do realize it, they're like, all right, we could handle this. And then like things get real. And a lot of ancillary characters die but also all of our main characters that you care about in that movie come out of it just fine i still feel like there's no reason even if you kill the 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 dumb sweet couple uh john should have like disappeared into a crowd like characters often do where you don't know and Mm -hmm. then turn up at the end to be the to the saver at some point and then they go off together it's I'm sorry, I need that now more more than I used to. I, I need that and it's it's the one thing that I feel this movie fails us on is it just it's too bleak at the end. It's also something for me personally that I I don't like in a horror movie when a love triangle situation is just neatly and conveniently solved by killing one of the corners of the triangle. Well, I agree. And the problem also is one thing I was feeling at the end was it almost felt like a little bit of redemption of Nick at the end was supposed to give us the feeling that maybe it's okay if she winds up with him. Not that this means you have to wind up with anybody, you know, but in a movie it's often very neat. And I was thinking it's a shame because now he's one of the only other survivors. They throw the two of them together, but it's like, but that's not good enough. John was the one 
that, you know. Well, yes and no. I think there's something really to be celebrated by crafting within a very sort of tropey structured situation of both the zombie movie and also a high school teen movie and also a musical Mm -hmm. where in a lot of films you're gonna get those two characters who are best friends and one of them's pining for the other but won't say it and when they finally do get around to saying it they realize they've loved each other all along and they're gonna be together but the thing is she can tell that he's trying to tell her that he loves her and she just makes it really clear to him like john you're my best friend yeah and like repeats it because that's not what she wants Mm -hmm. it's like she cares about him but not in that way so it wouldn't happen anyway is what you're saying yeah and i'm okay with that i like that about it i like that they make it very clear that she's her own person and he's his own person and they're best friends but also they're intending to go their separate ways when high school's over and he doesn't want her to go but he also is a good enough friend that he's going to support her in her decision you know decide she's going to take a gap year and go to australia her dad's mad he is supposed to go to art school except it's pretty clear that he's just lied to her about even applying because they keep asking well hi, why haven't you heard back yet and he's like oh i don't know and they're like well mm-hmm. it seems odd and you realize he doesn't want to leave because he's hoping she changes her mind and stays so that they can both be there it's like they're stagnating if they stay and all that being said i still don't think it's good to kill him right because right. he's sort of this sweetness and goodness and he's also one of the sources of some of like the light-hearted humor and the it, comic relief it is interesting too isn't it that kind of follows a little bit of what's become the standard 21st century walking dead version of things that the sweetest nicest most moral and and uh like best people in the group are the ones to die and not that the ones that are left are big, because we have uh, Anna, and I mean, Nick's obviously, he seems toxic, but he's got reasons. But then there's also Steph, and she's very cynical. She's like very bitter about having been left behind by her family. She can't get to her girlfriend. She's also like the hard hit, wants to be the hard hitting journalist who's going to reveal all the corruption in the world and everything. So she's much more of a realist mm-hmm. and she makes it. Mm-hmm. And Nick makes it because he knows how to fight and knows how to stand up for himself and is not going to, you know, just let it happen. He's going to fight back. And Anna makes it because she's our main character who wants to strike out and be her own person. But it's like, it's interesting. The three that make it are all to varying degrees, realists and less likely to let emotion uh, motivate them. Yeah, they all have their own version of cynicism. Yeah, and the ones that die are the ones that are like the cliched. I mean, even to the point of John has like the over the top, uh, it lights up Christmas sweater, you know, like he's he's full on like, you know, Christmassy and the couple is really cute, but and the guy has his little cuddly grandmother and everything. But it's like, but the three that make it, they're smarter. They they know what's up. 
And it, it kind of makes sense, I guess, thematically. Yeah, and I think it's also part of what makes it feel less hopeful in the end. Because it is kind of that, that Walking Dead style in that the ones you have left are the ones who are hardened. Yeah. And they don't exactly know what they're doing, but they're just going to drive and see what happens. If they I, don't have supplies, they don't have a plan. And I will say that I think one of the weakest, uh, uh, one of the weaker songs in the movie is also the final one. That's really sad. And then they do a little bit of a callback of the not a Hollywood ending one to wrap things up, which is a good way to, um, to bring that back around again. But it certainly doesn't send you off with hope. And and the thing is though, it then it then does have a beautiful little comedic touch in that we then get the animated end credit sequence, which is really cute. Mm-hmm. But it's just surprising ultimately how incredibly bleak it really winds up being. And it's like there's nothing wrong with that per se, but I think I think we both would have liked a little a little more cheer for the Christmas season, I guess. I think so. And I ultimately it's like we don't we don't really do ratings on our podcast. We're not like a ratings show. No, I can't but, stand that all the years I used to write for magazines where I'd have yeah. to come up with stars or something. But I think the easiest way to describe how I feel about it anyway, and I think you'd probably agree, is that if we were doing some kind of ratings system, the bleakness of how this ends up would be the thing that kind of knocks a star off the end of a rating. Sure. And beyond that, I think we both really like it. And ultimately, though, the way everything ends is still not enough for us to say, like, oh, don't watch that. Like, definitely watch it. It's a great movie. And not only that, as far as repeat watching, too, I think knowing what's coming. It's a little easier to take. I think it would be easier to take. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, to be perfectly honest, hearing you break down the relationship with John Mm. makes me feel a little differently about it than I did when we watched it. Because I realize now the way you break it down, it's like, yeah, he's not inevitable at all as a a partner. And it kind of makes sense. It's sad. But it's also like he, he's not he's not supposed to be the one like she's going to wind up with him. Mm-hmm. That's very clear from her perspective. So it's it's tragic, but I kind of see it differently now. So I probably look at it a little differently watching it again. Yeah. And ultimately, it's also not clear, even though they're they're coming out of it both alive, whether or not she's going to actually like, quote unquote, end up with nick i wouldn't expect necessarily which is also great because again they're supposed to be 17 like yeah it doesn't matter who knows what they want at 17 and i think one of the elements to me that really offers a bit more of that like redemptive feeling in the end is sort of the character turnaround for nick from being just a hundred percent toxic to sort of getting an understanding of why he is the way he is. Because I do think it's really important now, especially in movies aimed at a slightly younger audience with characters who are supposed to be teenagers or in their 20s, to show that people aren't caricatures, like people aren't tropes. When you do other movies like this, that guy is always going to be toxic. He's going to be toxic straight through to the end and then something horrible is going to happen and it makes you feel good as a viewer to say, ha ha, 
something bad happened to the toxic one. And you get that with one villain. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Well, he's also crazy. <laughs> like, that's a little different. He is over the top. He is a caricature, yeah. to be honest. Right. And in this case, it sort of shows you, look, these characters are real people. It's like real people are nuanced. Real people have reasons for doing the things that they do they're not just like an archetype and real people have the potential to change and to do better and to be better and ultimately you see that nick does have the potential to be better than being just like a 17 year old toxic bully jerk of a guy and that's important because i do think that people need to see that not everyone is irredeemable and a lot of times horror movies tend to really just put everyone in that archetypal slot in the film and then you just shuffle the cards around and have it work overall i think both of us enjoyed it uh, i think both of us would recommend people watch it absolutely um and if you got this far and you're like didn't care about full spoilers because some people it doesn't matter to them. Maybe you haven't watched it yet. I'd say even though it can be a bit bleak, um, even in the bleakest parts, there are some comedic moments and I would definitely say, give it a try. Thanks for listening to ghouls in the house featuring Natalie B. Latofsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NB Latofsky. That's NB lit of sky and Arnold at Dr. The dead. That's me. Our movie this episode was Anna and the Apocalypse from 2017. There's zombies. Not zombies. Oh, right, because that's perfectly normal. Rules in the House is an ATV Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books in your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. Well, we all deserve to go extinct.